0: This is Deep Dish on Global Affairs, going beyond the headlines on critical global issues. Today, I'm joined by Strobe Talbot, who is a former Deputy Secretary of State, a distinguished fellow in residence, and the past president of the Brookings Institution. He is also currently a distinguished visitor at the Buffett Institute for Global Studies at Northwestern University. Welcome, Strobe, it's good to have you here. Thank you, Brian. So I've been looking forward to this conversation because you're a a long time and distinguished uh, observer an analyst of both Russia, which you've been interested in for decades, as well as uh, as well as the U.S. government, and I want to start our conversation uh, with Russia, and I want to ask you kind of, kind of a big question: of how important is Russia in the world today?
1: Very, very, for a couple of reasons. It is the by far the largest territorial nation on the planet, it stretches off. Uh, two continents it, it has m- about half of the nuclear weapons on the planet we have we the U.S. has most of the other half and also it's a it's a, a wonderful country in a lot of ways it has given our civilization wonderful art and music and literature and poetry and dance. And it's also given us all kinds of headaches. Uh, And not just uh, in the last century, but before. It's also uh, a challenge for not just the United States, but particularly the the United States, because it uh, has uh, a history and now a new present of autocracy and expansion.
0: In terms of foreign policy and engagement in the world, what do you see as the primary goals of Russian foreign policy?
1: Well, let's put it in not just national terms, but in personal terms, and that means Mr. Putin. Mr. Putin has done something that uh, many of his citizens think is great Uh, which is making Russia great again. Um, But his concept of greatness is very combative. Uh, He wants to erase the legacy of the two Kremlin leaders that came before him, one of them being Boris Yeltsin, who made uh, Putin the next president of Russia, and the other one was Gorbachev, both of those reformist presidents of Russia, in in Gorbachev's case, the president of the Soviet Union, and and, uh, in the case of Yeltsin, the first president of Russia, they wanted to make Russia a democracy, they wanted to make it a, more, a, a normal uh, and uh, in, engaged country with the rest of the world. Um, and um, that was a dream. It was, an, it was a reality for a while, but soon after Mr. Putin came into office, Uh, and he was really put there by Yeltsin, he decided that that hadn't worked. And he wants to uh, make Russia a country that uh, is uh, feared uh, and certainly respected in ways that he thought it was not being respected during that uh, hiatus when it looked like finally, Russia was going to come into the 20th century not to mention the 21st.
0: And you of course were working in the US government and were Bill Clinton's primary Russia hand back in the 1990s in this period of after the Cold War and the emergence of of Russia after the Cold War. And I know during that period you also got to meet a relatively young uh, Vladimir Putin as he was as he was coming into office. What was your impression of him at that time and how is that tracked with how he has governed since then?
1: Well, I remember quite vividly my first real uh, substantive exchange with Mr. Putin, who was then the national security advisor to Mr. Yeltsin. Um, And um, he was clearly very, very smart. He was clearly very, very suspicious of what the West was up to. And I'll give you the exact context. Uh, Russia under Yeltsin actually worked with the European Union, NATO, and the United States to bring to an end the horrible carnage in the, uh, what used to be Yugoslavia. Uh, But that required for the Russian diplomacy and Russian military action to be in a way subordinate under the West. And it was pretty clear when I went to Moscow with uh, some of my colleagues, uh, and by the way, this was at a time when there was a a crisis uh, in Yugoslavia. that uh, Russia was, uh, was uh, helping to make more of a crisis. Uh, we went there and we couldn't find Yeltsin. He was um, uh, unavailable. And pretty much everybody uh, s- s- suspected that that meant that he was on a drinking binge and Putin was really uh, there in charge. And he was very, very careful not to, uh, not to lose the chance of uh, making us sorry that we had, in his views, humiliated Russia. So that's interesting.
0: I want to pick up on that because part of his narrative is that Russia was taken advantage of at the end of the Cold War. You know, and 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 uh, by decisions that you were involved in. Um, he's very critical, for example, of NATO expansion and bringing NATO right up to the borders of, of, of Russia. As you look back on those, on those decisions that were taken at the time, um, has he got a point? Is he, completely, is he completely wrong? Did the West humiliate Russia uh, after the Cold War? How do you view that?
1: Well, he had a point, but it was a very Russia-centric point. What he uh, refused to uh, agree with was the following. Russia, in its Soviet incarnation, had taken over much, I would say most, of what we then called Eastern Europe. They put all of these countries that had been uh, terribly, dealt with by the Nazis and they moved in and substituted for the jackboots of uh, Hitler for the, uh, the brutal rule of Stalin. And if we, the West, were going to uh, take uh, Russia's um, inferiority complex, complex uh, and say, okay, you guys have had a tough time. The Soviet Union has broken apart. Now Russia is just one of 15 former Soviet states. So we're going to make uh, it easy for you. And uh, we're not going to bring the Central European countries into NATO. The, the result would have been that uh, this would have been uh, yet another... Uh, outrage for those many people who had lived under uh, Soviet domination for so long. Um, And we tried very hard with uh, Yeltsin to go along with that rationale. He wasn't at all enthusiastic with it, but he uh, did go along with it. But I don't think uh, Mr. Putin has ever gotten over it.
0: And in terms of how Putin's foreign policy manifests itself today, obviously we've got situations like Ukraine where Russia is very, very active, Uh, Syria, the Middle East, um, where Russia is playing an increasingly important role, Uh, the elections, interference in the U.S. election, European elections. What do you think are the most important actions that Russia is taking today that have the greatest impact?
1: Well, I think you have... uh... Brian, uh, put the, 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 the real uh, problems that we're having with him uh, exactly right. Uh, and when you talk about, of course, the, uh, what's happening in, in Western Europe, there is, of course, another uh, shoe that has been, has been dropped on us, and that is Russia's uh, systematic attacks on Western democracy. But I do think that when you're talking about Ukraine, and by the way, we should put Georgia on this as well, uh, Russia is now back in the business of expanding its territorial writ, uh, in, uh, particularly on its, uh, its own borders. The, Rus- the Russians have basically Annexed parts of Georgia. They have uh, annexed parts of Ukraine. And of course, this is uh, not only a violation of international law, it's a violation of a, a process that got going in the early 1990s when the Soviet Union was falling apart. And by the way, the West did not uh, try to. Uh, break up the Soviet Union. It was the reformist leaders of a number of the republics, including uh, Gorbachev himself, um, uh, well, uh, uh, Yeltsin himself, uh, against Gorbachev, to uh, say, we're going to now split up the USSR and we are going to all be uh, equal, uh, independent, sovereign countries. So What he is doing, Putin is doing, is trying to roll back history and roll back against something that his own predecessors had put in place.
0: And do you expect Russia to engage in in additional uh, expansionist, regressive activities beyond where they are currently?
1: Well, we've been surprised uh, unhappily on a number of occasions. Uh, including, of course, Ukraine, including, of course, of uh, Georgia. But my guess is that Mr. Putin, first of all, is uh, he's not reckless. I do not think, for example, that he would uh, move into the Baltic states. But uh, he, he doesn't really have to, because there is a uh, a new and very worrisome, from our standpoint, uh, reality in the West. The institutions like NATO, like the European Union, are in bad shape now. I've just come back from a month in uh, in Europe. And uh, so that means that Putin has the luxury of sitting back and watch the West uh, Suffer um, morale, suffer um, cohesion, and, and one of the most uh, disturbing aspects of this is that he is also watching a uh, a disintegration of what had been a uh, a, a very important multilateral a community of democracies. And the United States, or at least the current government of the United States, is part of that problem, and it is not yet being part of the solution.
0: So I want to pick up on on this observation that you just made about Europe. About a year ago, you wrote in The Atlantic that historically Russia has a tendency to overreach and then end up losing ground by overreaching. Um, Certainly. Uh, militarily, we've we've talked about the kinds of actions they've taken, uh, involvement in the elections uh, in the U.S. in Europe, and in some ways seeding some of that dissension and lack of unity that you talked about about seeing there. You raised the possibility of overreach. A year later, how do you view this? Do you think that? Putin has indeed overreached and is going to face um, consequences from it, or is the strategy more or less working out as he would
1: like it to? Well, let's take um, Europe first, and then we'll go to the U.S. I do think that when Mr. Putin, who of course is an alumnus of the security forces uh, in, the, in the Soviet Union, uh, he... Um, did not expect that the uh, s- what was supposed to be a covert operation uh, in uh, all of these countries uh, that, that that would turn into an overt uh, cop- op- cop- uh, operation, which of course uh, has put everybody in Europe on guard. Uh, there's no question that the Russians in their cyber t- attacks and their use of their weaponization of social media uh, helped uh, get Brexit through. Uh, and, uh, but there were, and, and certainly it had uh, a some degree of uh, consequence for our own elections in, in 2016. Uh, but having been in France uh, recently, I've heard a lot of, from the uh, French officials and others, that they got the message so that when last year's presidential election happened in, in France, the, the French were able to basically defend themselves against this. And that is, I think, perhaps an example of overreach. And he, And Putin probably realizes it was overreach. And how do you see that in,
0: in the United States? Uh, we've, of course, got midterm elections coming up later this year. Um, France learned the lesson and took actions. Um, as a long-term uh, Washington um, observer, what's your sense of the United States' position and ability to defend itself in the upcoming election?
1: Well, Brian, uh, I have a perfect record as a prophet uh, <laughs> in general and particularly on the uh, American politics uh, in this particular uh, weird (laughs) era that we're in now. Um, I would hope that we as a a polity and a society will have learned a lesson uh, from this. I hope that the processes and institutions of American democracy will uh, be uh, under the protection of all of the appropriate um, agencies of the U.S. government. And I would hope, um, but I probably will not get this hope, that the Russians would uh, back off, uh, as it were. Uh, I don't think they will start backing off unless sometime down the road uh, that we're going to find ways to punish them with uh, some of their own medicine. And pulling
0: back a little bit beyond just the election issue, but to think about the Trump administration's policy toward Russia. Ivo Dalder, of course, president here at the council, makes the point that in some ways the Trump administration has done more to counter Russia in terms of support providing defensive arms in Ukraine, um, actually, uh, and some of the sanctions actions that he has taken. And at the same time, as many have noted, he has never had a bad word to say about uh, Vladimir Putin, despite the fact that he seems to be quick to to disparage others. What do you see? Is there a coherent policy in this administration regarding Russia? And if so, what
1: does it look like? Uh, since the answer to your first question is no, I, uh, I think it looks very different. Uh, it's a, it's a, a strange thing for me to think uh, or even to uh, articulate. There is the Trump administration and then there's Trump. Uh, and they don't have the same view of Russia. For example, the... Uh, new national security advisor, John Bolton, uh, is very hard over uh, uh, when it comes to dealing with Russia. Uh, the secretary of defense, the same. In fact, it's pretty much everybody around him, but he happens to be the president of the United States. But it's, of course, even more complicated than that because he's sort of stymied about uh, trying to make make nice with Putin and have a better relationship with uh, Russia when he's under investigation uh, over uh, the meddling in his favor, in Mr. Trump's favor in the uh, in the election, he's got he's got to he's got to be very careful and sort of stay back and and let his uh, his uh, his inner circle. Uh, do their thing.
0: Yeah, and certainly Congress too has uh, has expressed its desire for a strong uh, policy vis a vis vis a vis Russia as well. I want to ask about a policy area that you have long followed, and it used to be kind of at the heart during the Cold War when I grew up. Um, it used to be at the heart of the relationship between Russia and the United States, which was arms control. And as a matter of fact, the very first book of yours I read was your 1984 uh, book, Deadly Gambits. And it's fascinating looking at that, because I Took a look at my copy, and to see what what was that that you argued, and you know at the time you you were concerned. This was at the end of the first um, Reagan administration, and you argued that we're experiencing the most serious, protracted breakdown in the history of Soviet American negotiations on arms control, and that this was a portentous and dangerous development. Um, the fact that we weren't engaging in a process of arms control. Now the Cold War is over. The context is different. At that time there were. 25,000, 30,000, you know, nuclear warheads uh, aside, so it's a different situation than it is today. But we do face a situation in which— arms control treaties are not—there's no positive movement in terms of negotiating arms control treaties. There have been violations of some of those that have existed, particularly on the Russian side with intermediate-range nuclear weapons. Um, there are there are time-limited uh, treaties that are coming to an end. How important is this? And it's not anywhere on the agenda. Um, how important is it, uh, or is it just— is, is negotiating over arms control just not all that relevant or that important in
1: today's world? No, I think it's very, very important. And let me go back to the period where there was a hiatus uh, in, in the Reagan administration. Uh, and that had to do, among other things, with a, a kind of a non—no non, relationship whatsoever with the— um, uh, with the Kremlin, but that was uh, for a short time because Gorbachev soon came in. Uh, and so with, uh, with hiccups along the way, if I can put it that way, we as a nation and the, and the USSR, followed by the Russian Federation, have been uh, having summits between their leaders uh, over a period of many de- decades. Uh, and have been uh, not only uh, negotiating or talking about how to uh, not blow up the planet, but actually putting treaties in place. Um, And that it was kind of the saving grace of the Cold War. And it was started, of course, uh, well, I would say it was started by uh, President Eisenhower saying, let's have a a global compact on this. But what really uh, brought the, uh, the, the, nece- the, the, the necessity of arms control to the fore was the C- Cuban Missile Crisis. And that's when Khrushchev and Kennedy and then Johnson and all that came behind them made sure that even in times, and especially in times of tension, we had to be talking to the Russians and we had to keep the, the process of arms, conco- arms control going. We are now in a completely different uh, uh, mess, a uh, peril- per- uh, perilous mess, uh, because we have not really had any uh, progress on arms contro- control for the last number of years. Uh, b- 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 President Obama was able to get the uh, New START treaty, um, but it's dead in, the whole process is dead in the water. And a lot of those treaties that were put together in uh, recent years and decades are now out of reach. Um, they are, uh, they're kind of moldering and the technology gets uh, more dangerous and there is no, uh an indication now that there is going to be a return to arms control, and I think that is uh, makes this actually some people, and I'm one of them, think that we are in a in a new Cold War, and this one is more dangerous because there isn't ar- arms control negotiations going on.
0: So that's interesting to to evoke the Cold War because some people wonder, is this a new Cold War, or is this just simply a return of a great, pow- uh, great power rivalry?
1: Is there a distinction between those two things? Well, Brian, I would say that uh, I, I don't uh, fuss too much over the, uh, the, the phraseology we use. The reason I think it is a Cold War is that it has two dimensions to it that the, Cold, the old Cold War had. And one is ideology, and the other is geopolitics. Now, the ideology isn't communism versus capitalism, but it's, uh, it's uh, basically between uh, dictatorial governance and de- democratic uh, co- uh, governance. And by the way, um, the, uh, the bad guys, if I can put them that way, are winning, and we hope not for long because there is uh, a backlash against democracies and um, strong men around the world, and Putin is kind of the poster child for the poster man for it, um, uh, they're pretty smug. And while in the democratic world, uh, people are worried if um, uh, we're gonna be able to uh, put back a uh, a system that allows people to uh, choose their government and uh, to have the sovereignty of those government th- those governments be in the hands of the people.
0: Yeah, and just last week, uh, the deep dive episode was in Armenia, where kind of a counter. Um, experience happened, as you know, where the so-called Velvet Revolution, people of Armenia in Russia's backyard, rose up and actually forced a change of government. So there's some hope as well. But I want to I um, move to another major country that was not anywhere near uh, able to play the same role uh, during the Cold War as it is now, which is China. How does China figure into this dynamic, both for Russia and Putin, as well as the way we think about how to engage Russia?
1: Well, there are uh, some similarities between Russia uh, and China, but there are also some very important uh, differences. Uh, President Xi has now basically elected himself to be president for life. Uh, That's not democracy. But um, China is a very globalized country. It is a mercantile country. Uh, It is a state capitalism country and it needs, and it's very modern in a lot of its uh, resources and its policies, Uh, but not all. Uh, It's doing very well in a globalized world. And therefore the Chinese have a big stake in it being a peaceful world. Now, going to Russia, uh, Russia uh, is in decline, uh, demographically and economically. They're, uh, they're in ascendance uh, in, let's call it, bullying their, lab- their uh, na- neighbors um, and uh, in their military power. Um, my guess is that uh, the Chinese and the Russians are going to try to convey to the world that they've come together. But I, I think, in due course, because of the re- the natural resources that the Soviet, that uh, Russia has uh, out in the eastern part of the uh, of the uh, country. Uh, and the fact that there is very little population out there, and that part of Russia is cheek by jowl on the most populous uh, country in the world, which does not have a whole lot of resources. Uh, That's, I think, a uh, a recipe for major troubles between the two countries down the road. So I want to
0: pick up on, on part of that that answer, which portrays a uh, certainly and an accurately a, a rising China and also a declining Russia. I mean, Molly McHugh in Politico had this great description of Russia as little more than, quote, little more than a ghastly hybrid of an overblown police state and a criminal network with an economy the size of Italy and the world's largest nuclear arsenal.
1: And lit- Italy's not doing so well either.
0: <laughs> That's true, so uh, even then you're on the, on the escalator down. Does that mean that Putin isn't going to be able to sustain this challenge that he's had? Is the best strategy for us just to wait it out because this regime is just going to become less and less important? Or do we need to actually be more proactive than that?
1: I think we need to be more proactive when it comes uh, to the uh, undermining of our institutions. Uh, I think we have to be more proactive when uh, Russia and its leader feel that they can track down any of their exiles uh, and kill them on the streets of uh, Western countries. Uh, but um, at the same time, uh, I do think that, uh, that, that Mr. Putin, if this is going to be his last uh, term, has a real dilemma. Uh, if he simply goes the route, of kind of cloning himself, he finds a, a mini me, uh, and who becomes a, you know, a, a uh, an autocrat. Uh, that's just going to accelerate Russia's problems. Uh, what I've heard from Russian friends, and I, I have a number, uh, and they wouldn't probably put it this way in public. Uh, his his challenge is not just to find another person, but to find a set of institutions that can deal with uh, the, 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 the difficulties in the economy, uh, in healthcare, uh, and in um, uh, integrating its, itself into a globalized world. Uh, but w- w- uh, about a week ago, I had a chance to talk with a couple of uh, these friends and I asked them Putin has a s- about has a sl- a slogan of and it's the vertical of power will he give up the per- vertical of power which is basically says that the top guy is uh, is the only authority that really matters and they all said no if it's cho- if it's Putin's choice Uh, Nobody will dare to touch the vertical of power. That's
0: rather ominous for what would happen after
1: he departs. Yes. But what makes it uh, worrisome uh, is that it's not just going to be bad for the Russian people. Uh, It will mean that Russia will continue to be in this uh, paranoid posture of— slaying enemies that aren't really their enemies, namely the Western uh, countries. If uh, a really um, astute president of Russia uh, were in charge, he would say, maybe she would say, that the threat to Russia is first of all internal, uh, and the other two threats come from the South, from the Islamic world, and ultimately from China itself, but not Europe and not the United States.
0: As we close, you've been a very close advisor to one U.S. president, and you've already said that you have uh, no control and um, over the current president. But uh, for the sake of argument and to put out um, uh, significant ideas onto the table, if you did have the ear of this president and he th- you thought he would listen to you, um, what would you put at the center of U.S. policy What should toward Russia? What should the most important goals and most important principles be for U.S. policy toward Russia?
1: Well, um, in this fanciful scenario you've just given me, uh, and if he would allow me to stay in the room long enough to say it, I would say mr. President, the most important thing you can do is to reverse the policy or the strategy that you have brought into office, which is to go it alone, America first, uh, showing that w- you personally are not a fan of multilateralism uh, to show to, make people uh, who will be very skeptical uh, see that you have seen the light and you now know that uh, having a strong Atlantic community, having a strong NATO, having a, uh, if it's still possible, a Britain that is in the European Union. And also uh, you you would need to put uh, back into place what all 12 of your predecessors did in the course of, se- of, of nearly 70 years. Uh, and by the way, six of those uh, presidents uh, before you were Republicans and six were Demo- Democrats. They had lots of uh, uh, disagreements among, among them and rivalries, but they were all as one when it came to having the United States uh, not alone, but in a leadership position of democracies uh, and the institutions that go with them.
0: Terrific, well, thank you, Strope. This was really very, very helpful. And one of the things that's so, Uh, beneficial of getting your perspectives is that you can put it into the context, uh, a longer-term context, and a policy history that you've played a critical role in. So thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. And thank you for tuning in to this episode of Deep Dish on Global Affairs. As a reminder, the opinions you heard belong to the people who expressed them and not the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. If you like the show, please let us know by tapping the subscribe button on your podcast app. You can find us under... Deep Dish on Global Affairs, wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you think you know someone who would enjoy this episode, please take a moment, tap the share button, and send it to them as well. If you have questions about anything you heard today, or if you want to submit questions for upcoming episodes, join our Facebook group at Deep Dish on Global Affairs. This episode of Deep Dish was produced by Evan Fazio with research help from Marissa Flignor. Our audio engineer is Joe Palermo. I'm Brian Hanson, and we'll be back soon with another slice of Deep Dish.